Welcome back, friends, to The Mark Clare Show. With me today, he is the host of the fantastic, if I do say so myself, Counterflow Podcast. He is the one and only, as far as I know, Buck Johnson. Buck, welcome to my show. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. And that intro, I, I've told you this, the show is one of my favorite shows. It's one I usually don't miss uh, almost exclusively. Um, but the intro, you and I both like wrestling. And I don't know if you did that on purpose, but the intro is such a <laughs> WWE theme, like a great one. It's like my, it's, it is kind of like my entrance music when I would come down yes. to the ring too, if I were a, a podcasting wrestler type you know, yep. combination, uh, yep. which maybe I'll be someday. I don't know. We'll, we'll see where things go, but uh, maybe we'll talk a little pro wrestling too. We'll see. We'll see where things go. But first, yep. Buck, you know, we did uh, actually the impetus of this particular podcast. You're going to come on to talk a little bit of Clockwork Orange as I continue my uh, journey. Here, Here's that word. My journey through uh, the films of Stanley Kubrick. But first, it is your first time formally on the show. People have heard your voice before interviewing me on this podcast. Uh, but uh, why don't we just get a little background on Buck Johnson? Uh, again, uh, there, there's a long version of this but maybe we can do the cliff notes for a short one. I, I live in Lockhart, Texas. I am a firefighter in a city that I will not disclose where I've done that for 25 years. And I'm now an Orthodox Christian. I used to run the death to tyrants podcast and now it's called the counterflow podcast. And it's gone from much like Mark's journey, strictly libertarian politics into stuff. That's a little bit, uh, more widespread and, and maybe deeper to an extent than that. And a lot of my stuff's uh, often done through an Orthodox Christian lens. And uh, I guess that's, that's, the, that's the quick, easy version of things. That was pretty impressive. I, I got to say that, that was that was pretty concise. And I, I would say your show, I mean, especially considering from the time that you, I mean, your show has evolved even since it became Counterflow. But if you go back from the time it was Death of Tyrants to the kind of show you have now, I mean, it, it really is a huge transformation. There we go. I won't use Journey this time. It's transformation. Uh, yeah. So I'm just curious, just from your own perspective, what have you learned the most along this, as your show has transformed, what has transformed the most about you? Obviously, um, your your religion and your your adoption of Orthodox Christianity is probably going to be the biggest part of that, but maybe you can expand on that a little bit further and just how it has affected your your outlook and your worldview. Uh, well, that last word is the one I would use, worldview. I was an atheist. I grew up Protestant. And some of the the style of church I went to is what I personally would call an atheist factory. I've heard um, people that grew up culturally Catholic call their churches atheist factories. And I, so a long for a long time, I thought religion was just a thing you do on Sundays. And I thought, well, it seems silly or, or um, maybe uh, a lot of hypocrisy involved in it. And then as things changed over 2020, and I got to talking with some people uh, like Cyprian and Father Turbo, uh, and then dove into orthodoxy, it hit me like, wait, this is a worldview. It's not just a, I believe in this thing, and so I live my life and try to be a good person. Like, it kind of connects all of the dots. So I think my outlook and my worldview has been the thing that has changed the most because of orthodoxy. What by that do you mean instead of perhaps before when you were just attending church nominally or, or whatever, what have you, uh, it was something you did within your life and then you sort of yes. clocked out on the, on the way out and went back to the rest of your life. But now it's not like going to church is an aspect of your life. It, it, since it is your worldview, as you say, it's, it's just an, it's, it's, it's the entirety of your life. Yeah. In and a sense. in a sense, that's right. Uh, and people say to me sometimes, you don't have a libertarian show, but what's your political 
views or what's your political party or where do you sit on the political sphere? And it's instinctive now. It's I, my answer is, well, I'm Orthodox Christian. And so when growing up in Protestant churches, you would still hear uh, vote for the Republicans and and we're we're Republicans, we're pro-life and the the other people that aren't Christian are Democrats. And it's such a strange like that wouldn't even make any sense to me right now to say something like that. Mm-hmm. Of course, you can find Orthodox people and you could, well, who did you vote for? And that's the thing. But it's not, I don't look at things through just kind of surface level politics anymore. It all goes deeper. And so it's kind of what we, maybe you and I thought about libertarianism where we're like, well, we don't, we're not left nor right. We're a little right. deeper than that. And it mm-hmm. turns out, no offense to anyone, of course, but that's, still not very deep uh, when it comes down to it. Well, there, it's easy to get into a point where you feel like a, a rejection of something or a rejection of a paradigm is actually some kind of enlightened viewpoint uh, yes. when it really is childish, when it's not accompanied with actually a thoughtful, well, like, I guess a worldview and a, and a replacement for that mm-hmm. and a, a positive description of how things should be. And I think, and, and of course, as we both know, a lot of libertarians do have positive visions of how things sure. should be and whatnot, but a lot of yeah. people, including former versions of, of us can yeah. easily get into that other trap where they're, where they're simply reacting and rejecting and, and a rejection of something becomes their worldview, which isn't really a worldview. It does leave a void there. And as we, as we've seen, uh, you know, that void can be filled by all sorts of things. Yes, it, it can. I, uh, the, the talk that's coming out on my next episode, we talk exactly about that because the void, uh, I don't want to get too deep, but the cosmology that, that how humanity started was there was a void there on purpose to be filled by Christ. And so if you're not, there's still a void there. So you got to figure out something. And uh, that's why I do like libertarians like Dave Smith. I thought your last episode with him was uh, terrific because he's not just, I'm anti-state. I'm against the state. I'm, there, he still fills his thought process with what I'm for. And I think that's a more positive a way to uh, do it. And Father Turbo, who I know you've had on too, one way that he said it was fascinating to me, too many people are worried about the horizontal view of life and, and how you approach humans, left, right, et cetera. But you have, it's a cross and you also have to do the up and down view towards Christ or towards, uh, you know, the demons, if you will. Mm. And so I think that full cross, uh, like, like view. And then another way to, t- you know, if it's the Trinity, everything in American politics is, is, uh, is binary and it shows a, a, a lack of understanding of the Trinity because the Trinity is not binary. It's three. You had a tweet today that actually reminded me of that about the neocons want Israel, the woke people want, uh, I believe it was Palestine. And that's such a binary and it's such, such a classic American binary when in reality, uh, those people, both, both of those particular sides want in a way the same negative energy and neither one of them are looking upward. Right. Well, I think this, in, in, in a way, the will dovetail actually into the conversation that unfolds from discussing this film. So why don't we dig right into it? And first, you know, when I reach out to you about this, because I'm, I'm reaching out to a number of different people about doing uh, shows on, on Kubrick's film. I did the first one, 2001 Space Odyssey with Jay Dyer. And I reached out to you and I said, hey, by chance, I, just, I didn't really know if you were into Kubrick films at all, but you said you absolutely are. And not only that, but that this film was actually your favorite. I don't know if you said your favorite movie overall, but you definitely said your favorite Kubrick film. So why don't you just give me a little background on your, uh, you know, your interest in Kubrick overall and this film specifically. Yeah, I do like him. I actually, I am 
not a, my my people that listen to your show will get a kick that I'm doing a movie uh, episode with you because I'm not a movie person, and this is my first movie episode with anyone. But I have like Kubrick films. In fact, I went when I was in L.A. one time on vacation. He had a whole display at one of the museums there in Los Angeles, and I not a big museum guy either. <laughs> and I immediately saw that. I was like, we are going to this Kubrick stuff's there. I, I did. I do gravitate towards the clockwork orange stuff, but there's some of his other films I like as well. Um, part of the interest that sparked um, for me with clockwork orange, I don't know if you know this Mark, but it is big. It's huge within the skinhead culture. I did not know that, but I can sort of, I could see that, I guess. Now okay. that when you say it. <laughs> That is the culture I grew up in a little bit in my teenage years. And for people listening, Mark covered this with Father Turbo. Skinhead culture does not mean that you're Nazis or or. It's good power. to point that out because that is the it, first thing that would normally come. If I first heard it from you, it might it might be what I thought. But I heard it from Father Turbo, so I knew yeah, that probably that wasn't. <laughs> yes, that he's black. Um, largely, it's not uh, a, a, a racial movement at all. Um, a very small percentage of it is. And guess which percentage of the skinhead movement the media likes to... Uh, to you know get into of course probably the 0.01 percent there to the racist right. i'm gonna guess and so it is in fact this is an old skinhead band and as you can see this shirt i wore it on purpose uh-huh is themed after the clockwork orange uh characters and there's a band called the foreskins that sang about it the addicts uh sang about it uh, the band called Coxbar has a song called droogs don't run hmm. and so it was widespread when I was growing up in that culture. I saw it constantly. Of course, we only thought I, I was too young to appreciate some of the nuance and some of the messaging in it. We all liked the the fight scenes and the kind of ultra violence, as they call it. They were wearing you know skinhead boots quite a, quite often in the movie. And host and humble narrator, which is my tagline for my own show. Aha! I stole it from this movie. That so, that now that I put that all together, that makes perfect sense. Because yeah. he uses that phrase uh, quite often throughout throughout the film. It is really from a, a first-person perspective of the lead character, um, uh, Alex, played by Malcolm McDowell. I always accidentally call him Roddy McDowell because there's two of these guys, and uh, he's not, and he's not Roddy, but he is Malcolm McDowell. He needs yes, a, yep. It's a hell of a uh, cool. So we'll dig right into uh, we'll dig right into the movie, and I'm gonna just kind of kind of go through it, sort of. By scene, by scene-ish, but we'll just kind of discuss the the points that either of us find most important. So feel free to interrupt me any time along the way if there's something that you want to dig into. But we start off as pretty much as all Stanley Kubrick films do in some way, shape, or form. It's usually just hitting you um, audibly. He hits you with this this music. And as as we get into the film, we do find that Alex is a, a pretty interesting character. Of course, as we see, he, he is filled with violence and rage and gets a joy out of just torturing and tormenting people. But he also has a certain intellect about him because he is a big fan of Ludwig van, as he calls him, of uh, yes. Beethoven. So before I even go scene by scene, I mean, we see, we see Alex right in the beginning, right in that first shot, uh, zooming out of his of his eyes and the look on his face as he's drinking the milk, which we later find is called Milk Plus that they drink at the Karobovar. And uh, so what is your just in first impressions of this character visually and th from, um, as you've described, the the his uh, his his use of the uh, narration tool as the, as, a, as the humble narrator? Uh, well, I, I it stuck with me. So it, it clearly was an impact. I think it's wonderful. I thought his look, again, coming up in the culture I was in at the time, was just rad is <laughs> that that's how i would have put it back then kind of menacing 
but a slight bit of artistic quality to it, which in a way, although skinheads didn't dress like these guys do in the movie, there was like a weird twist of style to the look, but at the same time, it was menacing and and a little bit threatening to people. And then uh, the milk bar still fascinates me. In fact, there's a punk bar, I think it's still open in San Antonio, called the Corova Milk Bar, hmm. obviously taken from this, which also shows you how big that culture is into this stuff. And then I also didn't find out till my adult years uh, after researching it, what's in the milk. Did you, do you know what the milk, he calls it Maloco. Do you know uh, what's supposed to be in there? I, I don't know exactly what's supposed to be in there. No, I had, but then tell me. It's like barbiturates as far as my research goes. And then where, where's the, where, where do you find out what's actually in it? Because they, they don't talk about it in the movie. I I can't remember. I've done just a lot of research on this over the years. Okay, fair like, enough. I'll accept like that. <laughs> yeah. And adrenochrome. Oh, which I find fascinating. I didn't think that was a thing in 1971, I think is when this film was made. Of course, the book was written prior to that, but uh, adrenochrome, which is talked about with the conspiracy circles all the time now. I thought it was interesting too that, you know, Alex refers to it as as milk plus. And it's, this is how it sort of appeared visually in my mind when he said milk and very shortly after that said ultraviolence and used the phrase ultraviolence several times. I was picturing milk, ultraviolence, MK ultra. That's what, that's the image that sort of popped up in my mind that definitely wouldn't have 20 years ago. But wow. Um, yeah, that kind of struck out to me. I don't know if that's what it's supposed to be referencing. Of course, later aspects of the movie certainly are referencing yes. uh, that sort of uh, brainwashing type stuff. But if you, if you take the the milk as perhaps I thought you could take also take the milk as sort of part of potentially a government program of this is the kind of stuff they're putting out to. As we know, yes. you did a show not long ago with Jay Dyer talking about the '60s counterculture, and as we know, a lot of that love of psychedelics and drugs and all of that stuff did not spring up naturally. It was a, a, a it was sort of a concerted movement from the elites of the time. So I, I'm I'm curious if that's sort of a sly reference into the milk being something along those lines as well. That's a good. I hadn't thought about it in that those terms, but considering what it does to them and where it leads Alex, that is certainly, yeah, that's certainly a possibility. That's a, that's a good pickup, Mark. Well, thank you. That's why I'm here. That, we are the experts. You know, I, I was playing us down like we're not these, you know, we're not these esoteric movie analysis yeah, guys, but no. you know, we're going we're gonna to show people a thing or two today. Uh, I also thought a lot of things struck with me throughout this film of just the, the sort of the a lot of the visual representations of various objects and artwork in the movie yes. that really tell you a lot about the society. Um, you, we first see this in in the Karova bar where they're sitting on these uh, with this furniture that's like made of people. It's unclear if even sometimes if they're porcelain people or like maybe actually real people in some cases. And it's just it's just one of these things that felt. Um, I think the phrase that I, I think of a lot now that I wouldn't have thought, you know, 20 years ago watching this, it feels very satanic, a lot, a lot of it, a lot of the imagery. Um, a lot of it felt very akin to a lot of the imagery in, um, you know, in, in a lot of Kubrick's uh, other films as well. So it, it seems he is, he's very immersed in a lot of that type of imagery that I think that the elite, um, that the elite likes to use and the elites have in their home, which we'll, we'll see kind of later in the film as he encounters some of these elites. And the, the juxtaposition of some of the the crazy satanic aspects of the art and the, I still find parts of that inside the milk bar beautiful. And then the outside of how England was at the, at that time is so depressing and drab and like, we'll get into maybe what his parents looked like and how kind of strange mm -hmm. they were. But 
the stuff he was into was, you know, this artistic stuff and his, his, everything was a little bit brighter and, and more Then we go to that lady's apartment and it's the juxtaposition between the drab, ugly England mixed with this like flashy whites and oranges and reds, uh, kind of beautiful aspect of, of some of it. It's interesting. Yeah, Kubrick's use of colors always uh, yes. stri- strikes me in his works, but it's it's not just the colors; it's how they contrast with what you're seeing elsewhere in the film. And I think, like you said, when he's with the scene that comes up uh, next, where Alex and his droogs, as he calls them, his uh, his homies in his little sort of uh, uh, degenerate army that just goes around and fucking with people, raping, pillaging, and basically just being menaces to society, and they come upon this this homeless guy. And they start fucking with him. And this guy's just saying, like, just kill me. Like, I don't care. This world's horrible. And he goes on this rant about, you know, what is this? What, it's a stinking world. And he, he lists, like, you know, five or six different reasons it's, it's a stinking world. But uh, they don't do him the favor. They don't kill him. They just they just beat the living shit out of him and move on. And as, as we see these various acts of violence... Um, one thing that always that Kubrick always puts in there is the the juxtaposition with the classical type music that that always plays yes. throughout. Um, what do you just think of the overall in in this scene, but also throughout the film of how Kubrick uses that classical music, specifically the Beethoven's Ninth is the big one that that becomes directly associated with Alex of how he does that throughout the film. It, I think it's the same juxtaposition of the drab England versus the mm-hmm. beauty and the art, and, and because if this movie was made by someone else, specifically, I would say in the eighties that scene would have had some sort of punk rock um, playing behind it. And it would have been more stereotypical and made people just kind of think, ah, oh, this, you know, in a, in a more regular way, if you will, a normie way. But this weird that he likes, like some of the most beautiful music of all time, as he wants to rape, pillage, beat up people. Again, I keep saying juxtaposition, but it's wonderful. It's our new and, journey. <laughs> yes, it is. And it turns out, I think, uh, I don't want to spoil anything. They probably should have killed that guy or maybe not done anything to him at all. Because I, if I remember correctly, I think he reappears. And I will say the scene with with them, the side scene where they're first facing the homeless man under that bridge or whatever it is, is also a classic scene for the people that love this movie. I think, I believe that's the t- there's t-shirts made of just that shot. Ah, yeah. There's a, there are many classic scenes in this film. Um, and yeah, from, from the homeless guy, they also come upon this other, uh, this other group of other droogs, I guess, well, um, yes. which yes. I, I thought the scene was kind of, it's, it's kind of, I mean, it's not, it's not a funny subject matter, but the way that they carry this scene out, I mean, it's almost like a scene from like, they've seen the warriors. It almost felt like a, yes. a, a slapsticky version of the warriors, yep. the way this whole fight scene plays out. And the way that uh, Alex's set of droogs shows up and interrupt these other droogs who are, they're ostensibly raping this woman, which of course is a horrifying thing, but it's just, I, it just struck me as so odd the way that this scene was shot because it almost felt like a, this is gonna. This is gonna be on T-shirts. It felt like a slapstick rape. <laughs> it, yes. it didn't feel like they were trying to. I, I think yes, that's a good thing. I didn't feel like they were actually trying to rape her. It felt like they were just haphazardly sort of pulling, pulling them, pulling this woman around as it set up the fight between, uh, with between the two groups of droogs, which also felt like a very sort of slapsticky, uh, slapsticky fight. I, I think of all the scenes in the in the film, this is the one that that stood out to me as as the one I would just say kind of felt strange to me, to be honest, because it didn't feel like it didn't seem to have the the same ultra violent as a lot of the other scenes where the victims were clearly sympathetic in the time, whether it's the homeless man or, you know, the, right. the older people we'll see later on. It seemed a little out of place to me, to be honest, this one scene. But I don't, I'm curious if you have some deeper thoughts on it. 
It well, it made it look like Alex and his gr- droogs, uh, his gang. They're the top dogs, I guess. Yeah. They're the good guys in a, in a way because these uh, other guys look worse, I would say, and not as cool to to be quite honest. And there's gratuitous nudity here, and they're ripping this girl's clothes off. The girl's attractive, of course, and it makes you think like, oh gosh, I hope they don't do this. And you know, this and is before the- we've seen later later violence from the at this point we'd only seen them kind of rough up the homeless guy yeah. so perhaps they are still building up a, a more straightforward storyline of look yeah these are bad guys but these are the better bad guys so maybe that Correct. is the purpose yep like a dark comic uh, character or something that maybe you shouldn't go pick on a homeless man but look this other gang's raping this pretty girl ripping her clothes off she's distraught and they go and in this it's almost like the old batman like it almost should have had a pow bam kind of uh, scenario they're beating up the 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 worst guys if you will right right today's episode of the mark claire show is sponsored by right here fox and sons foxsons.com my favorite coffee brand and i don't just say that because they're sponsors of the show i say that because i get a one pound bag shipped to my house the proof is right here uh every single month I get my pound of Fox and Sons delivered right to my house. You should too. Of course, I don't expect you to just dive right in with no idea what you're getting into. I want you to go get yourself a sample bag. Go over to foxandsons.com, F-O-X-N-S-O-N-S.com. You can check out the Den Blend Dark, as is my preference, the Tanzanian Peaberry, Brazilian Honey Prep, a bunch of other flavors still to come. Uh, Steven's always mixing it up with new fresh beans. The best part about this business Stephen started it to not only relive his love for sharing coffee with his father, but to teach his own sons about entrepreneurship. If that doesn't give you the warm and fuzzies, I don't know what will. Just kidding. Yes, I do. This coffee will. So head over to foxandsons.com, F-O-X-N-S-O-N-S.com. Use discount code MCS to get yourself 18% off your order. You're going to be coming back for more. Trust me. Foxandsons.com, discount code MCS. Back to the show. Well, uh, yeah, they have that that scene, and they then uh, move on to uh, th- this is one of the actually the other scenes in the film. This is probably the only visual effect in the whole film that just didn't feel Kubrick esque. Is the scene when they're driving in the car and on the, the green screen. It, it yes. was the only scene that took me out of it a little bit that didn't feel as as masterful as most of Stanley Kubrick's work. But I'll, I'll give him a pass. You know, it's a it's a fast driving car. The, the kitschy reason of it, just again. It, this yes. part was cartoon comic book to me. For sure. In their Durango 95. And maybe um, there is a little bit of a purposeful uh, effect because we, we know full well uh, from 2001 A Space Odyssey, which came out well before this movie, that he's capable of of different kinds of effects. So it has to be right. somewhat purposeful to, to make it just a little bit kitschy here. Yes. I, I Maybe because I'm such a nerd about this movie, but I, I thought that was one of my favorite scenes uh, <laughs> as they did that. And again, it shows, I believe it's showing his of course, his one eye with the fake eyelashes uh, looking menacing and they're just goofing around. And uh, yeah, I, I love that part. And that's, is this, I think now when they go to the rich couple's house? Yes. After this? Yes. Okay. This is when, right? Well, first they play, what do they call the game on the road? They play, they call it hog in the road, which is when they just drive all over the road and, and fuck with people. And you, I, I think the progression does go that we see them be worse and worse as things go on. Like in the beginning, you might even be able to tell yourselves that he's not that bad. Like when they interrupt the rape or what have you, but then yeah. they're just kind of fucking with people on the road. And then they decide it's time to play a game they call surprise visit. So do you want to describe yes. uh, this scene to, the, to, the, to this mansion that they come upon? Oh. This is when you realize maybe they're not the best 
gang of all. And it's funny because I was talking to my girlfriend, Julie, she had seen part of this movie and she's got a little bit more sensitivity in her in her sweet female this nature. This film should come with warnings for those yes. that are sensitive to, to ultraviolence, I guess you could say. Yep, there you go. And she said, I think I stopped watching it because there was like pretty horrific rape scene. And I was like, no, I don't, I don't think so. Cause I hadn't seen it in years. I go to watch it for this episode and I texted her and I said, yeah, I better skip this one. Mm -hmm. Um, because of the scene we're about to get into where it's this clearly a nice rich couple. I believe the guy looks like he's a professor of some sort and he's got a wife that's much prettier than he would typically deserve. Probably and, about um, a, a solid couple decades, uh, his younger, I yes. would say. He's, he's doing yeah. well, this guy. He looks like an old British intellectual that would be at a, at a, some old university there. And she's like his hot little trophy wife. I believe she's wearing like a singlet, a one piece all the way yes. bright red, if I remember correctly. Um, I, I can't remember the color, but I believe it's, it's, it's red or purple. I literally watched this again two hours ago. So it should okay. be fresh. But. Um, yeah. And they basically rip uh, her one piece <laughs> uh, outfit off. And I don't think, again, now it's been like a month and a half since I've seen this, but I don't believe it shows anything explicit. It but It doesn't, but it, it's almost it, worse than if it, uh, I don't know if it's worse than if it did, but it, it it's so implied that you know exactly yes. what he's about to do. I'm mean, to the point that he right. actually takes his pants off. And I mean, I didn't do this, but you could probably freeze frame and see his actual stuff if you wanted. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems yes. genuine what was happening. Uh, and, uh, and they do kind of cut away before it actually happens. But as was definitely confirmed later on, uh, a violent rape certainly did occur. So you did not pause it. Well, that makes me feel weird. No, I'm, I'm joking. I was going to do that yeah. after the fact. I just didn't have time today. And that's yeah, for the smoke-filled room, my friends. There, there you go. They're also, if I remember correctly, they, they hold the man down. Doesn't they basically make him watch? And yeah. Well, they, both of them, they put these like ball gags in their mouth and tape them closed so they can't scream or anything. And then the man, the, the man, he's kicking on the ground while singing, singing in the rain, and then slapping yes. the he's alternating between slapping the woman and kicking the man in the gut as he's singing, singing in the rain. And then he basically just is is. Pretty much just saying what he's going to do to her as he he slices open the parts of her signet, exposing her breasts and then exposing her vaginal area and then takes his pants off. And it's very clear. I, I almost when I was rewatching this, I was like, I don't even remember how much worse does this get? I mean, I was hey. almost I almost was getting nervous, but they do actually yep. they don't show it. But it's it's as bad as if they do, really. I mean, it's, it's as disturbing as if they really showed, you know, showed more than they did. Yeah, it definitely uh, concluded in my mind. OK, my girlfriend should not watch this because. Yeah. She would see that part and go, Buck, you said this was not that big. Video. This is awful because it is, frankly, quite disturbing. And uh, again, a little foreshadowing. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it, it comes around again. We'll put it that way. Yes, as do many things. And uh, these boys, this is just all, this is all in one night, uh, one night out in the town, a school night, by the way, as we'll see. Uh, they go yes. back to the Corova for another a nightcap. And this is where we start to see a little dissension among the droogs, among Alex and his droogs. There's this like lady singing. I didn't, but we can come back to this later, but I thought the lady singing appeared later in the film, but I'm not sure if I, if that was true or not. Um, but he seemed fascinated with this one lady that was singing. And then one of his droogs, I think uh, dim or we had dim yet uh, makes a comment. Alex just slaps him. And then you can tell that, Dim kind of wants to go back at him, but you know he basically just gets gets shot down, and you can tell there's a lot of dissension uh, in the group. 
Uh, they have end, but uh, and, and in between this, uh, Alex goes back to his home, and we see we see his house, and uh, this might be something that might have struck you differently than it would have, you know, even just a few years ago. Uh, what did you think about Alex's room? Not just his artwork, which is certainly along the lines of the artwork we see in pretty much every house we see in the, in this film, uh, very sexual and whatnot. But he also has no. a, he also has a pet, Brock. What did you think of his pet? Well. At the time when I was younger, I would have liked it because I had one too. Did you? Uh, yeah, he had a snake. Is this, he also, there's, uh, well, the phallic symbolism, of course. Uh, I believe you put it into a naked woman. Is that where it was It was stored? Yeah, it's, it's, it was living in his drawer. But yeah, when he takes it out and puts it up above his bed, it sits on this thing where it's basically, um, it's, it's going into like, it's basically going into the vagina of like a paint, yes. uh, naked woman that's painted above it. So that, that has some obvious, and, and this is all above all these uh, Christ statue that's figures right below it. So that, I didn't even notice that stuff, you know, back 20 years ago Same. when I watched this movie. But that, of course, I figured would stand out to you quite a bit as well. It did. It kind of hurt to see it. I was like, oh my, I, I never noticed that before, but they were uh, basically like naked figurines of, of Christ, which is kind of crazy. I, I guess I could see today those being made somewhere at some kind of twisted festival, a pagan festival or something. But it's crazy to think, I mean, maybe they were just made for the movie, but if that was at some store in 1971, I think it'd be horrific. I, I feel like they probably were made for the movie, but I'm not sure. Cause this is, I mean, it's, it's weird. Cause the, they never are clear about the setting of this movie because in many ways it feels like, 1970s England, but it also feels like the future as well. There's some aspects that, that make right. it futuristic, so it's not clear if it's supposed to be like something that could have existed then or not, but I do feel like either way it was a lot of this imagery and a lot of that stuff is placed there really, I think, by Stanley Kubrick just to really continue to show us the state of this society because what Alex has is, you know, yeah, it's it's uh, it's pretty scandalous, I guess you could say, the artwork that's in the house and, and the snake and whatnot, but it's not all that different than the same stuff as we'll see later in, in the film that we see in the houses of, of the victims, that we see in the houses yes. of pretty much everybody. Right. Everyone has this sexual sort of art everywhere. So I think he's really showing you this is the state of society. Alex yes. is a part of society. Um, and I think as as things go on, especially using the choice to keep him as the, the, uh, the humble narrator the whole time, even though he's doing horrible things, and even though in no way is he portrayed as a heroic figure, even in, in one iota in this film, I do feel like there is the the techniques that Kubrick uses does make you sort of sympathetic to Alex along the way as, as yes. hard as that is to, to believe, but that he does, he does find unique ways to continue to do that throughout the film. And up until he, he gets out of the program that we'll discuss that he goes into, I do think his parents were made to look almost like the total squares of the movie. Yes. Yes. And then it's like everything quote unquote fun looking to, to the, no pun intended naked eye is like degenerate stuff even i think the symbolism of the snake but just the wild fun that they have the unique bar they go to the crazy sex things they do the the rowdy fights like to a young degenerate these this looks like well that's the fun life and then you see his parents in this small flat mm -hmm. uh and it seems their life's depressing now again later it looks like his mom has some sort of sex toy uh, that replaces Alex in a sense to li living there. But yeah, up until this, it looks like all the fun, if you will. And I don't mean that in, to me personally, but it's the degenerate nature of, of what's going on and everything's kind of collapsed and it's just gross, except for this beautiful milk bar. And then this wild fun, they, this rad Durango 95, they get to cruise in, et cetera.
Do you think this is part of why this film resonates with the sort of punk rock or skinhead yes. scene just because of that? That it displays the juxtaposition between uh, the boring, uh, systemic, uh, you know, societal regime, the systems, the man, if you will, uh, versus the wilder and crazier side, which does include you know, fighting, darkness, uh, you know, yes. things of that nature. Drinking, yeah, not not uh, adrenochrome and barbiturate laced milk, but you know, it would have been not artistic and not as unique, I think, to just put beer in in there. Mm-hmm. Um. He also gets a visit, or no, this is uh, for, this is the next day. Alex decides to, uh, I love this uh, I love this whole scene because, you know, we have a teenager at home, so we've seen this kind of thing, but it was it's pretty funny, his his logic here. Uh, you know, his mom wants Alex to get up and go to bed, and Alex says, you know, no, I'm, I'm sick, you know, I, I'm not well, I gotta, I gotta rest, mom. And Alex, is, she's like, well, you're sick, you're, you're gonna miss school. And he says, well, I've got, got to rest, mom, got to get fit, or else I'm liable to miss more school. Yes. <laughs> that, that just cracked me up because it's such a it's such teenager logic, but, but, uh, but, but Alex uses it quite, quite effectively. And this is where you realize, like, I mean, it's not clear how old he is necessarily because he seems right. like a young adult in the beginning. They're going to a bar and whatnot, but he's got to get up and go to school in the morning. So I don't know if he's supposed to be a teenager or this is just a, a weirder more modern futuristic society where maybe, you know, all these lines are a little blurred. So maybe it doesn't matter how old he is exactly. Yeah, yeah that line was blurred. In fact, I remember the first time I saw it and I'm like, school? Like, wh- what is it? I, I just realized I'm, this whole time I'm drinking a protein shake. I'm basically drinking milk as well. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> is, is there adrenochrome in there, Mark? Um, I cannot comment. There you go. Uh, I have in my notes, oh, this prime minister. Wait, hold on. No, 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 no. Prime minister's later. That's later. The record store. Is that where we're at? Where yes. Yeah, you can take off into the record store. We're about there. Yeah. He's gonna he's gonna go on a little solo adventure. And Alex, as we'll see, Alex has got game. He does. He does. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember this part of the ring. It's funny because Today's episode is sponsored by Fox and Sons Coffee. And let me just tell you, Stephen of Fox and Sons, he is not just an advertiser. He has been a supporter of this show from day one. And frankly, since before day one, because he came over with me from the old Lions and Liberty days. So true a fan of the show. He started this company, Fox and Sons, out of his love for coffee and really out of wanting to further bond with his sons and spend time with him, just like he shared time with his father drinking coffee. Uh, he also gets to teach his sons about entrepreneurship entrepreneurship and business through this endeavor. So I'm so happy to have Steven and really his whole family, the Fox and the Sons, the whole gang as a supporters and sponsors of this show. Not only that, his beans are so high quality, fresh. Look, I just got two new bags right here. I got the Mexican and my favorite, the Den Blend Dark. The beans are super high quality, fresh and sourced from small organic farms, fair trade. None of this GMO garbage. They're all small batch roasted. This is high quality stuff. Subscriptions are by far the best way to get your coffee. I have a couple subscriptions going, uh, but that is the way to go. You never run out that way. I never run out. I always have my supply of Fox and Sons. So I want you to head over to foxandsons.com. Put in your order today. They ship fast. They ship now through the end of February. Also, by the way, you're going to get free shipping on any order over $37.99. By the way, while you're there, use discount code MCS to get 18% off any order over $25. Stephen Fox is a great man, a great friend, great supporter of the show. I encourage you to check out his coffee over at foxandsons.com. There is that aspect of the record store, but in my notes and in my mind, I first remember it's so futuristic looking. Uh, I'm a record lover and 
it just blew me away. I thought, what a cool store. Why can't there be any stores just like this? And then of course, there's the um, 2001 Space Odyssey record, like you can see clearly in, in one of the, the bins right up oh, front. Oh, I didn't catch that. Oh, you didn't? No. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's it's in there. And uh, it's, of course, he meets these, I believe it's two young ladies. It appears See, it's to be. funny. I, 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 in my notes, I put how cool the record store looked and, and that, that one record was in there. I didn't even write the fact that I believe now is where he goes and has a threesome with these and, two. And my, this shows where we're at because my notes just say Alex goes to the record store and lands a threesome. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Well, that's why we uh, need both of us so we can make sure we cover yeah, everything. Yeah. Correct. And uh, to your point, they were quite uh, attractive ladies. And then it goes to this scene of the actual threesome again, which I would have had there not been the rape scene earlier, texted Julie and go, yeah, you wouldn't like this part either. But it's really fast and it's almost done in a kitschy way. It is like, uh, a, it's almost like a Benny, like a Benny Hill. Yes. Is it the Benny, it's almost like you picture with the Benny Hill music, how, uh, yes. how, how they kind of speed it up. Yes. Or they're like, right. or something yeah, like that. Yeah, exactly. Some circus tune or something because, but he's clearly having a wonderful time. Uh, I, I, maybe that Corova milk, uh, the Maloko plus, gives you some extra oomph or something because it, you know. Or he's just young buck, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but not not young buck. <laughs> no, but not young buck. Um, we did skip one scene, I just realized, and I want to go back to it just because there's an important line in, in it where this, uh, this like, the guy from the corrective school comes to check up on Alex because he knows he hasn't been in school. Yeah. And, he see, and it's really creepy because, first of all, Alex is in his underwear and he yes. sits down on the bed with him and, like, lays back with him. And it's, it's a very, very creepy scene especially because we still are not clear if this is a teenager or a young a young man or what i think either way i think between the milk and the the way he lives with his parents he's clearly not like 14 you know he's an he's an older young man if nothing else i think they are really showing us the infantile nature of of his generation um as well which is again back to the juxtaposition very juxtaposed with what that infant that same infantile generation goes out and does at night yes and then the quote unquote this representation of the man uh, comes over. I'm surprised I didn't write that down. That's actually why I was trying to think. I, I knew we were. This was around that scene. Well, when he's and berating him too, the the guy says, "Well, the key line here is he says, what's wrong with you? Is it some devil that crawls inside of you?'" Yes. And then Alex is in his underwear, which I guess during this supposed time, the the fashionable ones for for young men to wear were tidy whities. They were and fashionable this, when I was a kid in the 80s, too, you know. Where you go, this old man. Well, at least that's what my parents bought me. I don't know if they were fashionable. <laughs> this old man's re representing <laughs> uh, the, the authorities, if you will. And Alex ends up laying down on a bed with his feet hanging off the bed. And this, this man is clearly uh, gay and wants to molest Alex. And it gets creepy for a second where he puts his hand on his junk, if I remember correctly. Yeah, and then something breaks it up or it stops. He just Alex it, just jumps up and like grabs his junk, and I was like freaked out by it actually. Yeah, which does and, I think add to the sympathy for Alex because look, if this creeper old guy is trying to touch him, who knows yeah. what else the system has done to him to make him what he is now? Correct. Right? Is he a product of some sort of like systematic abuse uh, by authorities or whatnot? Did he know what that? Did he know that guy well? Would, was he expecting this? I, I suspect you wouldn't want to just be in your underwear, but whatever. Uh, yeah, that was a, that was more disturbing. Maybe just because I'm a man, that was more disturbing than the other scenes in it up to this point. Yeah, 
it's it's the only one where Alex actually felt, I mean, until later on, but where when he's still in this sort of uh, phase one of his character, where Alex felt like the victim there. You know, it felt like, whoa, what, yes. what are you doing to this kid? Even though we right. just saw this kid, you know, raping people last night. Right. And then he, it it makes up for it when he, again, goes to the record store and meets these yes. lovely young ladies. Yeah. And then his day worked out okay. Yeah, it, it ended up fine. Um. And then uh, later, Alex, after the whole record store scene, Alex goes and uh, meets up with the Droogs and they have a little talk with Alex. Uh, Dim says like, no, you're not going to like talk to me like that anymore. And the other Droog is like, no, this is this is the new way. We're going to do things different. We had a whole talk about this. We're going to go after because Alex's thing like they're not like robbing people and taking a bunch of money and like making bank and sharing all this money. They're just doing this stuff because. Alex is violent and he likes to do this stuff and he likes to fuck with people. Like this is not really a profitable venture for these guys. So they're saying right. like, look, we're going to go for some bigger jobs, the big money. It's all, we got to do the big money and we're going to split everything evenly and we're going to be a team. And Alex is just kind of like, all right, I guess you guys talked about this. Okay. But then shortly thereafter, he attacks both these two droogs. There's the, there's the one that gets left alone. Cause he's kind of not, not one of the runs rebelling. He's just kind of there. Um, and he slices both of their wrists. And as we learned through the narration, he was very careful to not to carefully slice them in a way that wouldn't, uh, that wouldn't permanently kill them. But uh, it certainly does enough to scare them back into, uh, being his underlings. So we, we do really alternate between seeing so many different sides of Alex. We see uh, the Alex who is uh, a rapist. We see the Alex who is a victim of child molestation, perhaps. We see the Alex who is a, a smooth talker who can just whip himself into a threesome uh, at the record store, just like that. And uh, then we see the Alex who's acting more like more like a mob boss here, you know, like getting his getting his people in line, making people fall, fall in underneath him. So, and this is all just, this is all in the first like 20 minutes or so of the movie. So we've seen like a full range of, of, of the different aspects of Alex's character here. And part of maybe this was because I grew up in that subculture scene. There's some tension between the, the Droogs and Alex, and there is tension within me watching it mm. there every single time that uh, there still is to where I think what makes the head of the gang, the head of the gang, mm. is it just some unspoken thing? Is he voted on? Is he jumped to a certain thing? You know, there's all sorts of gangs throughout subcultures and, and throughout history, but you see quickly, it's like he thinks he's the head just for these little acts of violence. We find out that, you know, they're going to turn on him. And it's almost like I think of it in wrestling terms too. You know, when you see these factions, right, it's like, right. why is that guy, you know, why is Hulk Hogan the head of the NWO? And does he get, to, when will he turn on him? And, and just things of that nature. Why was Edge the head of, uh, what he, the last thing he the was judgment in day, yeah. Judgment Day. And then of course they turn on him. There's always this tension uh, throughout storylines and in, in real life in my past, it's like, what makes this guy the head? And I've always found that fascinating. Does that translate to you just coming from that punk skinhead culture? Because I mean, I know there is like, like you said, fighting, violence is sort of like, even yes. when it's amongst friends is sort of part of the culture. So are there, is there something in like the, the friend group circles even? Is there that dynamic there where you're like, at any moment that we know this one guy could just like crack me because, you know, because I kind of stepped out of line. I guess so. There, there was two rival skinhead gangs in San Antonio. Uh, neither one of them uh, white power for those who are wondering about that kind of thing, which made it even more weird. But they clearly had leaders, and and I never thought at the time, like or maybe maybe I thought, but I never knew the answer. That's a better way to put it. What made this person the leader of this group? What made that? I just knew they were. Right. And well, it's always been fascinating to me how that kind of comes about, if it's organic or if it's by 
through violence or or what? I wonder if it's just like the micro, because I, I always wonder this thing when I'm watching mafia movies or this kind of thing. And there's like always the one guy that, you know, he can, he's always the one that can have the three guys loyal to him, go cap, cap the other guys. And, and, and it's always, I always thought that like, what, what is special about that guy? Like what makes it where that guy can persuade people? Cause at the end of the day, he's just a guy like anybody else, whether it's the mob boss or whether it's Alex or whether it's uh, a president or a dictator. I mean, that one guy, it takes two guys to physically take that guy out. So what, what is it that, that creates that aura of a guy? And I wonder if this is just, you know, maybe it's just one of those mysteries of the universe, but it's something coming from the political circle that was talked about a lot, um, you know, in the last couple of years, uh, elite, elite theory, the Pareto yes. principle that there's always, there's always that per small, very, very small percentage of the population that for whatever reason, that maybe we can't fully grasp there, that there are certain people that are simply born as the elites in yes. their club and maybe on the small level, we see that even within these little Drew groups or whatnot, yeah. or punk, punk rock skinhead groups. Exactly. Even even uh, within subculture gangs, there's right. a natural hierarchy that can't, there's no equality even at that level. Mm -hmm. All right. So, um, yeah, so he, this is where he, like I said, he's kind of like asserts his dominance and then I love how they're, they're, at, they're at lunch or whatever afterwards and he's just like, all right, so yeah. Back to normal, right? Back, back to the way things were. It does, it does at least for the moment, seem like they've kind of fallen back in line. Um, but now, you know, it's it's time to go back out and uh, go do Droog things. So, uh, Alex, they go into this other mansion, um, up to this mansion where Alex rings the doorbell. And he did this uh, earlier with that that first guy. And he kind of said, That's I forget right. exactly what he said, but he said, like, oh, we're stranded out here. Like, we need help. Yep. And the lady calls the cops because she she recognized that description of what Alex was saying at the door. She recognized that from the story about the other couple that was killed. Um, so Alex, he doesn't, he tries to get in by using this, you know, you know, by trying to convince her it doesn't work. And while he's doing that, she just decides, he decides to sneak in. And what we notice when he actually enters the house and uh, enters the room and goes to assault this woman, uh, the rest of the gang is not, is not with him. It's just Alex there. And again, in this elite woman's house, who is clearly, you know, one of the wealthy people in society, one of the well-to-do people, what does she have all over her wall? She has all these sexual paintings. And then she has, this is the, this is the scene uh, for you. It was the other scene for me. This is the scene. My wife was like, just make sure I don't come in the scene during, 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 during in the room during this scene. This is the scene where she has this giant, basically penis sculpture, which at first Alex just goes to touch. And she's like, do not touch that. That is a very, yes. very important sculpture, which I thought was pretty funny. And then um, he goes to attack her. She gets a shot in on him, a pretty good shot in him, on him. But that uh, that was not a smart move because now Alex just goes nuts. Uh, he loses it on her. And he then basically, you don't see her face smashing, but you do see the aftermath. And it's clear that he murders her with a giant uh, penis sculpture. Um, giant ceramic. <laughs> Penis. Which, um, you know, there's there's layers, I'm sure, you know, uh, some people might watch this uh, of a certain uh, political bent and see this as the domination of the, the patriarchy over <laughs> over females or something like that. But there's, there's certainly messaging there of some sort, no yes. matter what your take on it is. And wasn't at first, wasn't she fighting him with a bust of Beethoven? Yes, yes, that, that is a thinking. good catch, yep. Yeah, yeah, but who, of course, is his hero. Well, that's probably and what pissed him off even there, more. It's almost like, just from the men out there, think of a crude term that can be done in a sexual act. I'm not going to say it, but it's the it's the great penis trying to go into the bust of Beethoven. It's going back and forth, and that and it's. I think it's. I remember there's this funny music playing. Yeah, where again it makes it slightly kitschy, but at the same time, I think this is where you get the dun 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 dun. Uh -huh. dun. 
in this, it's very clear uh, that he murders her, unfortunately. And again, she was, he goes into this house, the juxtaposition against the ugly drab, well, let's say it's England for, for the sake of conversation. And it appears to be. <laughs> art and pretty things, again, a little bit vulgar, but even just the fact that she had this giant ceramic penis, it's, it's, she's clearly better off, at least financially, it would seem, than, than other people around her. Indeed. And Alex, actually, I think this is the first time he actually looks a little bit horrified for a moment himself, too. It almost looks like he was like, whoa, like I'm a rapist and a pillager and whatnot, but I don't kill people usually. So he for a moment, he kind of freaks out and then he just he just runs out because I think he knows that she called the police at that point. So he runs outside and the other jukes are just kind of standing there waiting for him. And he's like, well, come on, let's get out of here. Let's let's go. And this is when you realize that they were setting him up the whole time here, too. They were sick of his bullshit. So maybe he didn't really have the swagger to to be the one to, uh, you know, to remain the elite of his group. And they smash him in the eyes with the milk. It takes him out and uh, he is uh, taken off to the slammer. So I'm just curious. Did you see this one coming like the first time? I don't know if you can harken back to the first time you saw this film. I I didn't either. Looking at it back at now, maybe it's because we're wrestling fans and we could, we've learned to see the little seeds planted. Looking back now, yes, of course, they planted the seeds for this all along in the yeah. various other scenes in the movie. So it almost it almost now looks obvious that uh, that they were going to turn on him. Yeah, it's I I remember seeing it when I was a teenager and I got bummed out and disappointed. Like, oh, all the fun's over and that these guys ruined it. But yeah, especially coming from a wrestling angle, mm-hmm. it's obvious that this had to happen. And basically, he sneaks up without them, does his thing, murders a woman, comes out all jolly and, all right, let's go and crash. The milk goes right in his face. And this is the first time where you hear Alex, I believe he's like almost screaming in pain as this is supposed to burn his eyes. Of course, the glass broke over his head. He can't see. And this is the first time, other than the slight vibe where he looks like he was going to get molested, where it's like, clearly now he's the victim. He's hurt. He's crying. He's upset. And you can hear the cops coming because, uh, again, as Mark said, once they did this this line through the door, of, hey, we broke down outside. I need help. I'm by myself. Uh, she knew that that had been said at the other couple's house because of the news reports. She calls the cops. They were already on the way, uh, little to his knowledge. Yeah, and then this is, I feel like this is, I'm, I'm going to look through all this in pro wrestling terms now. You know, this was like a, Shawn Michaels getting, you know, he's like Marty Jannetty at this point. He's getting thrown yep. through through the glass. This is where you do start to get some more sympathy built up for Alex. You know, he gets turned on. He gets the, the glass smashed in his face. Uh, and then they continue this with the interrogators. And this does remind me of pro wrestling. Like, especially if you do have a big heel a character that might get turned on or they want to turn into a baby face, they'll build up more sympathy for him by having more bad shit happen to him. So I think they do that with Alex here by uh, first having his droogs turn on him, but then just the, the horrific treatment that he is given by these interrogators. Yeah, of course. Now, in fairness, they're humans and they're pissed. They just think that they, they would truly, which did happen, that he they just murdered this woman. So they're sort of taking it out on him too for being a degenerate and a piece of shit. But, um, you know, the, they treat him a certain way. And then this correction officer, the same one we saw like molesting him earlier, comes in and he's almost gleeful about the situation. He's like gleeful. They're finally going to, that he's gleeful that Alex killed somebody because he's like, good, now they're just going to put you away. So it's great. But it really makes you think like, is this, this is not really a, good guy here like this guy's happy over the death of someone just because it means you get to put this you know this brat kid away and to top that all, and, and this is the same guy we saw like try to grab yeah. his dick in, in the previous scene and then yeah. after all this 
Worse, they, they say, look, you can go take a shot, punch him in the face, do whatever you want. We, we won't, you know, we got your back. He doesn't do any of that. He just spits in Alex's face. And Alex looks more hurt by that than he ever could have by, you know, that he didn't even seem to care about the fact that he was getting the, beat, the shit beat out of him before. But he did look particularly affected by the spitting right in his eyes. So they really do a lot, I think over these these couple scenes to try to make Alex he's he can never be a you know a character that we look at as some kind of angel but they do try to add he does a lot to bring bring some kind of sympathy to Alex and just that it's it's already built in for the viewer that this gross old man is somewhat of a, a child molester of sorts and to see him now reappear and it's like oh it's that guy again and and his the twinkle in his eye was a bit odd the spitting and it's almost like he's just some dis- he's kind of a disgusting degenerate himself. Yes. And he, he just got authority here. He's over- just the Simpsons version of what Al- the- about what Alex does in uh the in the unapproved way, but he does yeah. it through his own position of power in a, in an approved way. If there were an Epstein uh plane back then, it seems like that guy could have been on the plane. Yes. Let's put it that way. Sure. Um, this is when uh, we learn that Alex gets sentenced to 14 years, and this is really when yeah. we get into the, the core of the movie. Um, there, there's one scene, this is really nothing to do with anything, but uh, th- when Alex is checking in to the uh, the jail and they're checking all his items, this really, I thought this was a scene out of Austin Powers. This is cracking me up so much. There was nothing funny about the scene, but I realized, I think the scene from Austin Powers, you know what I'm talking about, where Austin is uh, checking all his stuff and he checks his, uh, and then he checks a penis larger remover and he's like, <laughs> that's, that's not mine. And he, there's there's yeah. a book like penis enlargers and me. And, like, and, and it just reminded me of that. So I think, I do think they got that. That is a parody from this movie because it was mm-hmm. cracking me up. Not because the scene itself is really all that funny. It's kind of funny. He has like a half a candy bar and they check in the half a candy bar. Um, but I'm just picturing Austin Powers the whole time. So just a little sidebar on that i uh, also gets an anal inspection which they do in awesome yeah. i'm pretty sure that entire scene is is from is awesome powers now parry did all that because they do the same thing in awesome Par- powers through the progression he then goes to the the anal inspection and all this stuff all the same stuff that alex goes through uh and then it seems alex maybe finds jesus perhaps yes. a little bit uh in his own special way so first he attends this they show this kind of catholic preach uh giving a speech and alex is there and you almost think for a minute he starts talking about as the narrator. Um, and you know, I think one thing that one, another reason that so much sympathy is built for Alex throughout is he is, he's, he is a trustworthy narrator. He's not dishonest at all. He's always very forward and honest about his motivations. And so you, it doesn't seem like Alex thinks anything is wrong with what he's doing at all ever. Uh, and even, I think we, we discussed this earlier, whenever you hear the classical music kicking in during those scenes of, of violence, I think that is supposed to be through Alex's point of view. The music is in his head because this is beautiful to him. You know, what he's yes. doing is beautiful. So as with any good villain, I guess Alex is not, I, I mean, this is a very complicated character that I don't think you can call a hero or a villain. He's the hero and the villain of his own movie in many ways. Uh, but yes. every character sees themselves as the hero. And I don't think at any point Alex sees him as a, himself as anything but good and trying to, you know, trying to fight through this system. Yeah. And it's a crazy aspect of, of what he's doing. Similar to say the Joker in that first uh, Batman movie with Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholas, where he, the Joker is like kind of dancing about in this crazy artsy outfits while he's kicking people then yes, you know yes. blasting people and there's this music playing and he thinks everything's beautiful and but yet you see how twisted and sick he actually is it kind of reminded me a little bit of that very much and, so yeah uh this yeah he's got this bible study going on and it, it it alludes to like well he's he's getting better and it's there was always this underlying like is he faking these people or is he actually getting better 
And then he goes to this thing where th- apparently there's a, uh, a voluntary uh, experimental treatment. And so this is where I started thinking, okay, he's not better, but he just wants to get the hell out of here. So he's kind of playing the game, if you will. Well, I think, I think right before that too, is where we kind of get a glimpse that he's not necessarily better. I think it's right before this, at least in my notes, because he's, he's sort of talking about his, uh, you know, his learning, how he's written, reading the Bible and learning all the stories. And you, it almost see, he, he does a scene where he envisions the scene of Jesus being whipped. And he's like, He's saying how inspired he was and he felt like he was there. And then you realize the camera pans over and you realize he's envisioning himself as a Roman soldier whipping Jesus. And he's like, I can envision myself there being such a beautiful part of it. Again, showing this is how how he views the world. This is how he views uh, right and wrong. I mean, he sees this violence against Jesus as a beautiful thing, which again... Not something I would have noticed a few years ago, but I think this really ties back to some of the symbology earlier when we saw the Jesus, the naked Jesus statues, the snake, et cetera. Yes, that's a good, I, I actually skipped that. I had that written down, this bizarre, of course, he likes the Roman aspect of these right. rituals and, and things like that. But yeah, then you're like, wait, what? <laughs> Again, it's, it's the strange back and forth, uh, like a paradox, if you will, that, uh, yeah, you're like, is this guy good? I kind of feel bad for him. Okay, no, that's sick, you know? Mm, right, they really take you on a, an up and down where every time yeah. every time you start to gain a little sympathy for him, they take you in some other direction where you're like, "How? no, this guy's horrible. How could you possibly feel sympathy for him? But they effectively right. do this throughout the whole movie. Yes, yeah, quite well, especially during this treatment that he's about to undergo because then, especially now, I don't know how this would have been viewed in 71 or whatever, but now it just looks like an MK Ultra program that he's going through. Mm-hmm. And those of us, the, certainly the people that listen to your show, see this as that is the bad guys and and now alex certainly is the victim although and then you start to think well did that stuff in the milk get him to act like he acted now the mk ultra people have a victim to put into their program so you, i started right. thinking these things right i started th- thinking in loops like yeah we just see them taking this bad person and taking him out of society to put him in the program but is this more of a circle is is are they first dosing people with this milk and getting them hooked on milk to turn them into these degenerates to then bring them into the program you know is yes. he a vic- is he a much of a victim of this from the beginning is i guess is the real the, the question Yep. And of course it can look like, oh, we're the good guys. Look, we, this treatment we gave this, this sick degenerate youth, he's better now. We are the good people, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Problem, reaction, solution. But then in the meantime, what you see all around, as I've said a few times, you see, it's not like you see Alex and his droogs as degenerate, but they don't actually stand out in their society. They almost just seem like the natural progression of what we see everywhere else in the society. Again, yes. like I said, even in the the houses of the really rich people, you see these weird giant penis statues. You see this uh, these sort of satanic sexual imagery everywhere. You see this these people furniture weirds that you know yes. weird weird sculptures and that are even are like are these supposed to be dead people that we're sitting on? So it's 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 a very dark society. You you know, and even even the violence to the point that the violence of Alex doesn't really seem to stand out as much as it as much as it does to, to fit into the society. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. It's almost yeah, it's just like the the natural conclusion of where everything else is going. Of course, it's going to drive these younger, more violent uh, type men to just take this crazy sexual deprivation a step further and do the rape aspect of it. 
Exactly. And um, so then, uh, yeah, as you were saying, he goes and finds out about this voluntary program to try to you to get out of jail in like in like forty in a fortnight, I think they say, and, and goes to like the uh, goes to the Catholic minister to try to get into the program, yeah. and he does get into the program, and then we see Alex. This is where we see pretty much the most famous part of this movie yeah. that the iconic scenes where we don't need to go through every little aspect of it, but the, the biggest crux of it is that Alex is put in these chairs and he has his eyes held open and there's constantly someone, you know, putting water drops in his eyes, but they, they position him in such a way that he can never avert his eyes from what he's seeing on screen. And at first it, he thinks it's pretty cool. He, at first it's like a movie and it's a violent movie, but he says it was, it felt so real and it, it's like the kind of stuff he really likes. Yeah. Um, and it's, it, there were scenes like his guys, uh, attacking the other yeah, like group. guys that it's not it wasn't yeah it was they may as well be his guys they're they're dressed in yeah. weird similar outfits doing similar sorts of rapes and activities um and and then it makes you wonder like you know yeah obviously this is like propaganda footage they made i'm not saying that it's supposed to be real footage of other rapes but it makes you think if this is the kind of stuff they know is going on out there like how much is all of this part of the larger picture of of what of the kind of things that they pull the strings on do they pull the strings at both ends yeah and i believe they're I, they start playing of course uh, uh, Beethoven. Beethoven's ninth. Yep. Yeah. Which is yeah. Yeah. So that that is the the fucked up part of. I mean, there's a lot of fucked up parts of this, but from Alex's perspective, that's the fucked up part of this because at first he's enjoying it, but then this does become a form of torture where he's he's objected yes. this for hours upon hours of time, and then it becomes sexual imagery, it becomes rape, it becomes every image of violence to the point that they ba they basically reprogram Alex to get sick, to get physically ill at any thought of sex or violence or any of these degenerate activities uh, that, that, he got, that he got involved in in his old life. So um, they do present Alex. And if, you, if there's anything you want to, I'm kind of getting to the point where I'm, I'm, not, I'm not getting as detailed on a lot of this stuff. But if there's anything in here that you want to dive in on more, you can. Just uh, from that part where he's getting physically ill and it, it, they de actually demonstrate it because they get him on stage and, and, right. and do these realistic scenes in front of him and he starts puking. Um, if you could look at it through an orthodox lens, it's everything they were showing him was bad for his soul. Mm. And so he's getting spiritually sick by seeing these things as well. That mm. That's one thought I had now looking looking at this. Interesting. Interesting way to look at it. Yeah. So... But basically, they they yeah they, they do this demonstration as you said where they they sh they're showing him off like look what we did and they have this guy that's trying to get him angry and then they show him like a beautiful woman and and yeah it just makes him sick he's every time he he's he, he tries to start fantasizing about raping the woman but he can't he gets gets him sick so they declare yeah he's good to go and instead of coming up with some plan they just release him out into the wild so he at first just goes where you know where any kid i guess go he, he goes home and this is a uh, where he finds um first he sees his bed isn't made so he's a little you know yeah. dismayed by that he's like what's going on my my bed's I've been gone for months my bed's not made and he finds out this guy is living there and it does seem that there is the mom is sort of like holding him by the arm and it seems that it's implied that they have made some kind of contract it's it's, it's not very clear but they say no he lives here now we have a contract with him we can't just kick him out um and there's it, like you like you said it seems that this guy is basically brought on brought in to be their new son and also be a sex toy for his mom yes it appears that way just to rewind a quick second i wrote something down that i found interesting now as an orthodox christian of course uh, the priest comes up when, as he before he's released, and says like he's good. We've killed his free will, which mm -hmm. of course is what Christ gave uh, humans. Uh, interesting. And so I, I thought that was an interesting uh, 
Christian twist on it, that they've now killed his free will by showing him all of these horrific things. And it made me think like, imagine society now with the internet and, and AI and all these gross things, we still have free will, but if you're a slave to a lot of this stuff, uh, it, in a sense, they have killed your free will. So anyway, that's just something. Well, in, uh, on to that end, one of the things that he finds out when he goes back to his home is not only his stuff is gone, but he says, what happened to Basil? What happened to the snake? And he's told snake. he's told that the snake uh, is no longer with us. So I wonder how much that, I mean, because depending on your interpretation, the snake could be almost the opposite end of that, representing um, the ultimate um, pursuit of will, where will is the only important thing to your, uh -huh. to, to your life and inserting your will is, is, and that is kind of what Alex was before, where he just, his whole life was just, it was do as thou wilt. I mean, it was Crowley. Yep. It was do whatever feels good. Um, yep. So that's maybe that's, that's now gone from him too. So maybe uh, his free will, maybe the, the good side has been gone, but you know, it's, it's all gone. It's, you lose your will, you lose your will, you lose the will to do good and you lose the will to do evil. Yes. I, I thought, and it was interesting that the priest is the one who said I came up and said, well, we've killed his free will. He's good. Right. Right. Uh, and he comes home. Yeah. We see he's been replaced and, uh, I'll let you take it from there. So we, you can lead us great interviewer. Yeah. Well, I, I really thought too, this is where they continue to build sympathy for Alex. Cause even here I start, you start to feel bad for him because he, he's like, well, what am I supposed to do? I don't have my, my, and his parents are just like kicking him out. Cause this guy is, in living in the house to boink his mom. And, but I did find it funny in this scene too, where you can tell this guy starts talking shit to Alex. Like, I know what you did. Like, I know all that, all that yes. stuff you did. And Alex, you know, you can tell he wants to just kill the guy, but he gets sick again. So he's like, Oh man. But in that moment, you find yourself rooting for, you kind of want the bad Alex to come out now. Yeah. Cause now he's like your guy at this point in the film. He's like, he's your scumbag. You, you could say. Uh, so, and, and especially when they present you with this other douchebag, who's less, he's just boinking his mom. And this is like the most disliked character, you know, that you, it, it's impossible to like this guy. So it, you really do want Alex to bring the violence back. And then it's almost like, uh, as Alex gets that, that sick to his stomach, we're like, ah, oh, damn it. It's not good. He's not going to come. Right. He's not going to come back. So in the course of this film, they have, they really, Stanley Kubrick, I keep saying they, I mean, it's all, it's almost all Stanley Kubrick. He wrote and directed this film. Um, it, it's, it, it really do bring you on quite a, I'm going to do it quite a journey through Alex's character, uh, and seeing, seeing him from every aspect. The interesting about this, the interesting thing is he doesn't really change his character the whole time. It's really just we see the various aspects of, of his character um, from, from different vantage points. And now we're still thinking, is he fixed then? Because he wanted to beat this guy. Right. And he gets sick. Right. Well, so yeah. there's, still, there's still this haunting feeling like, okay, is he cured? What's going on with him? Is this a, is he, is this a play for everyone uh, on everyone from his perspective, just so he could be free again? And uh, at some point here, he runs into some people that he knows. Yeah, so this is, this is like a, this is your life now, uh, the, this last like portion of the movie. Um, you know, he's all distraught, doesn't know where to go. So he's just wandering around, comes upon that same homeless guy. And like this homeless guy starts asking him for change. And, you know, he doesn't want to. Again, he wants to like just beat him up or something, but he starts to feel sick again. So he starts to reach for change. But then the homeless guy recognizes him and he's like, you know, I never forget a face, starts chasing after him. And as the, and the, this guy and these other homeless guys join in, they're all chasing after him. And Alex can't even fight back because as, as he gets the desire for violence to defend himself, he gets sick and just kind of collapses to the ground. So uh, it's a bad time for Alex. And it, things get even worse because the cops come uh, due yes. to this whole scene. And who are the cops now? 
the fucking droogs, the same droogs yep. that turned on him are now the cops. So it's like, oh my God, things are, which makes me think too. I mean, they say, oh yeah, we got cleaned up and now we're, you know, now we're, we're but we're good guys now. We're part of the cops. But that seems like a pretty quick turnaround to go from being street punks to becoming officers on the street. And yes. I, I kind of wonder like, I wonder if these guys were his handlers all the time. If they were always like the feds, so to speak, if they were always the guys that were supposed to incite Alex into violence, put him, you know, I, I, I wonder that because it, it seems awfully convenient that just like months later when he, because he was only there for a fortnight, they said. So like, yep. you're telling me 40 days later, these guys are cops? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that's an interesting way. See, I, I, I hadn't caught the time period. I looked at it as uh, the pro, their, pro, excuse me, proclivity towards violence uh, drew them into being cops. Mm. And so that, well, yeah, that's that, what I thought. That makes sense too. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, I was thinking that both. long enough time, I suppose, unless they just quickly said, well, our leader's gone. We need a job. Which, maybe. Yeah. Which, and maybe in this future, it's not that hard to become a cop, you know, maybe yeah. just, just a quick <laughs> 30. All right. You know, maybe they're, they, they were thankful for them turning in Alex or what have you, or whatever it may be. I guess there's a lot of interpretations, but either way, things are just getting worse for him. And these guys take him to this, this most disgusting like bathtub in the middle of the woods with the dirtiest filthy water and just start beating him mercilessly, shoving his head in the water. So again, as bad as the character Alex has been, it's hard not to continue to feel sympathy for him as he goes through uh, this. This is your life of meeting everyone. He's he's kind of uh, wronged along the way here. Um, eventually, he wanders away from this, wanders into a random mansion, which is the mansion of the original old dude that uh, Alex beat up. And old dude recognizes him. I think at first he gets carried in by this guy who I called awesome powers with muscles in my notes. This guy, yes. this guy, this guy cracked me up. He's like, uh, I guess he's the guy that helps, helps this guy out now that he's, so now this guy is crippled. He's in a wheelchair. And yeah. as we do find out, he takes Alex in, uh, says, Oh, this is great. You know, well, you, you've turned things around. Uh, you can, you can stay here. Um, let's Alex take a bath. There's this weird scene where Alex but, gets out and like they're, they're, he wants him to drink the wine and Alex, you, you think Alex thinks the wine is like poisoned or something? Cause what made me think that, like, which made me think it? that too. And then it seems like it's, you know, he keeps testing it and he finally just drinks the wine. The guy just encouraged him to drink more. And then you kind of forget about it for a minute. And these other guys come over, uh, cause they're, they're interested in learning more about Alex for some reason that we'll find out why this is where it's revealed. Uh, where it's very clear. I don't think it was clear that this, that all of this was connected before. Cause we just see the, vi we see that when he gets violent or has sexual desires, he gets sick. But then we find out he explains in this scene, no, but they did it with his song, Beethoven's ninth. And now he can't even hear Beethoven's ninth without getting sick. Well, Alex, that was a big mistake to reveal that because this whole time, this guy, we find out this guy was using Alex for two things. One, he did want to get revenge, twist sick and twisted revenge upon him. Uh, because we find out his wife, his wife was raped by Alex and, the wife died later of pneumonia. They said, the doctor said they said it was pneumonia. They said it was pneumonia, but I know what it was. I know it was because you raped her basically. So the, to get back at Alex, they lock him in this room and play just Beethoven's ninth, knowing that it's going to drive him insane and make him sick. But knowing also um, that they want to use him for political reasons because they want right. to, they want to make the government look bad. So there's also like a false flag element to this too. Um, so Alex jumps out of the window and you know, tries to kill himself. There's even some headlines where they say that Alex kills himself, but I guess later uh -huh. we know that he really didn't die. Um, but he's basically is like used as this, he's a, they attempt to use him as a political tool um, to show the program failing, but then he gets a visit in the hospital from this prime minister guy um, who essentially just says like, oh yeah, you know, you're better now. You're the face of our new program. And we're almost 
led to believe like, you know, Alex maybe really is cured now or something until you know, the very last scene. But I'll, I'll let you give your commentary before we get get right there. That's that's what I've, I found fascinating. Yeah, he, he the whole time. Yeah, I'm thinking it was this awkward tension at the dinner table. I think there's pasta being served and there's this wine and you're like, oh, yeah, this guy's poisoned. It. Oh, and it was po- it was poisoned or something because yeah. li- later you forget about it. But as I was gonna say, he does. Yeah. He does his fall face flat yeah. face into the uh, spaghetti. Yeah, and then of course the torture of all things. Yeah, his his the ninth symphony, Beethoven's the ninth ninth symphony, and it says I've gotten my notes and I can't remember exactly, but the uh, the doctors and politicians are blamed for the suicide attempt, I believe. And then I remember he's in 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 a, in a scene in the hospital, and there's photographers, media, and and all of this, and this guy comes in to thank him, like he's some sort of hero. And then, uh, yeah, I'll I won't spoil the end part, but go ahead. Well, yeah, I mean, this is where you, and I think this the ending is somewhat up for debate, I guess, to an extent, but I, I kind of took this as, yeah, the thing worked, the original brainwashing worked in the sense that it made him sick every time he had these desires to to kill or, or what have you. Um, my interpretation of this is that, of just from the material sort of straightforward ending of the movie, is that he jumps out the window, he tries to kill himself because he's lost his mind from the music, and then I think when he hits his head, I think... I think it fixed it fixed the brainwashing is what I think. Yes. So he's playing along now. So now yeah. he comes to see this minister and he's acting like he's all good and what have you. And then what we see from this last scene where you, we kind of see this deranged look in his eyes and then he just has a vision of, this is a pretty w- wild vision. He's just like, it's not rape, really. He's just getting fucked by this like woman, uh, this naked woman on a beach and surrounded by these like, official looking people that are all like clapping and, and, and approving of it. And that's like his fantasy. And that's the end of the movie and and it had been a while since i had seen this probably like 10 or years or so i didn't remember that being the end of the movie that exact shot right. so it kind of took caught me off guard i was like oh don't we go back to and isn't there something else but no it ends right there and you don't really know what goes on with alex um so i've talked a lot in the last few minutes i'll let you take it away what, what do you think about the whole way they kind of wrap things up here so i've gone back and forth from thinking okay he wasn't cured at all but like you we've said throughout he he was physically ill and you know if he wasn't cured at all he would have probably assaulted the the uh boy toy of the mom you would think Mm -hmm. yeah i think he originally was cured in in their sense yeah so do i so i've come at the end after seeing it many times to think he was cured and at some point i i didn't know if it was the poison wine that screwed him up or uh the the fall like you said but it's some something in his head reverts back to how he was Maybe their their cures aren't as powerful as they wanted to to tell society. But yeah, whatever the case, clearly at the end, uh, it it kind of makes you smile in a weird way. Like, right. okay, their their scary crap didn't work at all. Maybe it did work. Maybe it wore off. Some for whatever reason, in the end, it did not work. And it's this interesting thing to position to be in as the viewer, because again, even though Stanley Kubrick does a lot to build sympathy for Alex. He also does a lot to show you he's, he's he is a bad char- character of the soul. There are very few redeeming qualities of Alex. Right. You never even see him be nice to even one of his guys. I mean, there's really no reason to... You don't see him do one thing that's good except for when he goes to give the homeless guy change because he's been brainwashed and he can't he can't yep. resist it. And I, I think it's... They never... It, it It's not like Alex ever changed. Alex never changed in the whole movie. They just did this thing where you know, where he got physically ill. So then he realized that I guess I have to play along and do this stuff or I'm going to get sick. But I think the whole time, the real Alex was always there. And it's kind of like that, that last shot, that scene, because 
if the brainwashing was still working, he wouldn't even be able to have that thought without getting sick, right. without getting violently ill. So you know he's back, and you know, you know, we don't know where that's going to go. But it's interesting, too. They end the photo right before that. He's a photo op. Like, the prime minister is taking pictures with him, and he is, he's been turned around into, like, the victory of the government. Look what they can do. Yep. They can cure crime. All we got to do is put people into the system, which makes you think, too, like, Alex is just the first one. He's the yeah. he's the commercial for this program now that now I guess all these criminals are going to go to. So now, and it, and if it's like what we were discussing is a possibility before that perhaps the the uh, the drugs and all of this activity is created by the government in the first place through the the milk, the MK or the Corova, whatever this, this is in yes. this drug. If they're actively creating people to put them into this program then clearly the entire purpose is just to turn society into a bunch of uh, free will-less drones. And boy, yes. Buck, does that tie into a lot of things to talk about on your show. Yeah, it does. And in the end, like in real life, you can't kill free will. Uh, so he still has it no matter what they did. That's not something that can be taken away from, from humans. Which despite what a despicable character he is portrayed as is sort of an inspiring message <laughs> in its yeah. own way. It Right. It's not, of course, it doesn't show his free will to help people and, right. and, and do charity. It shows his depraved free will, but nonetheless, it is his free will. That's what he was driving on the entire movie until he gets caught, et cetera. And in the end, you cannot kill uh, free will. Yeah. And I think, I think Kubrick does a brilliant job here of, of no matter your take on, on this character and where things are going, I challenge anyone to watch this movie and like not kind, not be smiling when you when you see Alex and having this vision in the end. Because yes. as bad of a, a character it is, they the system itself I think is portrayed as so much such a greater evil that even though yep. we know Alex has done bad things, we know he's a piece of shit. We also see he's not some unique evil in the society. I think they show us enough to make it very clear that he is he is as much a product of the society as anything else. And if anything, all of these acts that he's done, all these terrible things he's done are things that he's been sort of made to do by who knows by this guy who molests who's no has who knows yes. that probably wasn't the first guy that guy that time that guy touched his dick and that probably right. wasn't the first time that alex himself has been the victim of some pretty nasty shit and been exposed to some really over sexualized wild stuff because we see this stuff everywhere in the society so i think when you look at it as alex being a victim of the society then yeah it's hard not to just Shake, you know, be be cheering for him when you realize, all right, our boy is still in there. He's a bastard. He's a scumbag, but God damn it, he's our scumbag. Yeah. And like you said, he doesn't change through the whole film. And if, for those uh, listening, not watching, I'm doing like by pen in a plane, straight horizontal, but it's people around him. Some are worse than him. Some are better. Some are worse. And kind of how you view him in that moment is in, is relative to how the people are around him. Uh, when you see the guy trying to molest him, right. all of a sudden he looks better than that person. When you see him raping a pretty lady, mm. he's below that person, et cetera. Interesting. Yeah. And Alex is like, he's like our constant. He's the metric that we can use yeah. to judge everybody else in our society. Yeah. Uh, Buck, any last thoughts on the on this film? And I'll let you dovetail from that into uh, you know doing all of your plug and let everybody know where they can find your work at Counterflow and whatnot. Uh, well, I think it's a great film, despite the the vulgarity and the crass nature of a lot of it, but I've liked it for a long time. I hope we enticed uh, a person or two to see it. It's fascinating, especially if you like Kubrick. If you do, really, I'm, you've probably seen this already. And that's my final thought on that is for my show, counterflowpodcast.com. You know, anyone knows where to find podcasts. Mine is called Counterflow with Buck Johnson. You can go to the YouTube page, subscribe. And uh, that's about all I got on that on that front. 
Well, Buck, a pleasure as always. And it's been, uh, it's been quite a, here I go again, quite a journey watching the evolution yeah. of yourself and your show. So I want to encourage people, if you're a fan of this show, you are assuredly going to enjoy uh, Counterflow and Buck Johnson. So I definitely want to encourage you to check that out. I also want to encourage you to check out the Smoke-Filled Room segment. That's where Buck and I are going right now. Buck, thanks for coming on the show. All right, friends, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Buck Johnson breaking down the good old Clockwork Orange, one of the fine films of Stanley Kubrick. We will continue to return to the films of Kubrick throughout the lifetime of this podcast. There are quite a number of people that I have in mind to look at future films or past films. They already happen. Future episodes. You know what I'm saying, guys? Just play along with me, all right? Humor me, will, will ya? And this conversation, my friends, did continue as it always does in the smoke-filled room where I spoke with Buck a little bit more about his thoughts on conspiracies, where his work on his podcast overlaps with conspiracy theory. And since conspiracy fact, got his thoughts on the UFO push, UFO propaganda, all this good stuff and more is available in the smoke-filled room bonus segment, part of the premium edition, the full edition of this show. My friends, if you're only hearing the regular old version for the pores, my friends, you're missing out on one third of this program. I hate to tell you, but I got to be the bearer of bad news. But the good news is there is a solution. Just subscribe to the old Mark Claire show premium, which you can do on Patreon, on Subscribestar, on Rockfin. You can support me on Rockfin where you get access to all sorts of other creators as well, including past guests of the show like Monica Perez, Jay Dyer, Sam Tripoli, Isaac Weishaupt, so on and so forth. Corny Turner, Monica Perez, the list goes on. I might've even already said her. The point is, Great value over there if you support a bunch of creators. But if you just want to support this guy and you have various levels at which you can do so, you can check out the Patreon or the Subscribestar. I don't want you to have to remember all these links. So I'm just going to have you remember one. It's markclaire.com. There is no K involved in this, my friends. Mark, M-A-R-C, Claire, C-L-A-I-R, markclaire.com has every link you need for every platform this show is on, for every way you can support this show, to join the Telegram group. We have a blast in the Telegram group that is completely free to join. You do not need to support me financially in any way, shape, or form to join the Telegram group and join in the fun. You just got to track down the link at markclaire.com. That's all. That's the price of admission. My friends, it's been fun until next week. In case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening. And good night.